on the Pete Bechtel machine. Bechtel runs him a little wide in turn four. Pete Bechtel, your leader. The ball, look out, Bruno hits him and the road goes Bechtel. Pile up, Brian Hoare is off the top. Joey LeCare, Dave Whitcomb involved in it. Yellow flag is out, the leader, Pete Bechtel, gets turned around. Welcome, everybody. He's Justin St. Louis. I'm Tom Corbett. This is Uncommon Deeds. Hey, hey. Ho, ho. Yep. Ho, ho. How you doing, buddy? Good. Life is chaotic in the, I want to say in the best of ways right now. It's just, there's too much going on, but it's, it's good stuff. You? Yeah, you know. Feeling that winter cabin fever a little bit. Oof, tell me about it. And, you know, I enjoy little things, and obviously I enjoy, you know, winter time. I've been very fortunate that I've been in a position where I can kind of stay home more the last few winters and, you know, spend time with the kids and take the kids to school and pick them up from school and do those little things that, I'm glad I didn't miss out on, but yeah, sometimes when you know, more than half of your year is spent outside every single day, being inside for long stretches can get almost a little tedious. Yeah. But hey, it was like 45 today and sunny and went for a drive after I dropped Rowan off at preschool and you know, cracked the window, got some fresh air. Mm-hmm. It helps a little bit. I saw 53 on my dashboard when I left work today. That was nice. Yeah. I don't know if it's true, but it, in my mind it was. For and the every, cabin fever thing. What's that? The cabin fever thing. I, I had COVID last week with no symptoms. So I was just stuck in the house. I would have felt better if I was sick. But it's over. So that's good. Meanwhile, I have a 12-year-old who claims to be sick. Every three school days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that I've had enough of that. <laughs> yeah. Especially like, I think I could count probably close to, I could count on both hands the amount of days I missed all through high school. I think oh. I had a couple of years where I was close to the old perfect attendance. Hell, I only missed maybe a couple days my senior year and I was driving from Williamstown to Hardwick every morning at 6.30. What? Yeah, we had moved. My dad had moved to Williamstown right before my senior year and I did not want to change schools. And my mom, I think hopefully Statue of Limits has all run off and they don't come after us for money. But no, my mom still had her address in Walden Yeah. But was still spending winters in Florida 
So I didn't want to change schools, and the basketball team was really good, and we were going to have a chance at a championship. So I commuted my entire senior year from Williamstown to Hardwick every single day. That's Thank God when you're, you know, 16, 17, you're still just excited to be driving. Because I did it later when I was doing, like, Hazen Summer League. I would go twice a week from Williamstown to Hardwick, and I'm like, this sucks. Sucks. And I was doing it five days, and then, like, after basketball games, you get back to the gym sometimes on road trips. You'd get back at, you know, 10 o'clock, drive to Williamstown, get there, 11, 15, 11, 30, and shower, go to bed, get up at 6, get ready and drive back to Hardwick the next morning. Unfun. Yeah. Unfun. Let's talk about more positive things. Do you have any? I don't. No. I mean, uh, (laughs) Super Bowl was this week. Uh, We did pretty much a live reaction as soon as it was over for the new sports order. That went up as we record this. First thing Monday morning. We record it, obviously, Sunday night. That's there. Um, I think we're in the process in this next week and a half, two weeks, a kind of rebranding that channel a little bit more into the uncommon media channel to house the new sports order stuff, as well as kind of make a drop zone for random stuff we might want to do or want to try, which is exciting, whether it be, you know, you're, You've talked about doing some comedy stuff with yeah. a friend and having a place yeah. for that, or you and I talking about kids' movies and kids' shows, which was something we were very passionate about six months ago, and it just never materialized at this point. But check it out. I mean, the new sports order stuff... I've really been enjoying lately, and it's getting just a little more fun and goofy and less regimented, which is good, and I think it's going to get even more entertaining in the off season because we are going to do some interesting stuff, whether it be we talked about doing an episode on Little Giants, which I haven't even told you because oh, yeah. you've never seen it. I'm going to no, have Justin you, watch. You mentioned it once. Yeah, you mentioned it once, but I – I don't remember. Yeah, we're still going to... I'm going to... I haven't told it to you yet. I'm telling you now. I'm going to have you watch it like the day before. Nice. And then you're going to come in on that episode. Uh All right. So it's like two guys that have seen it 50 times. Oh. And you're seeing it once in your life as a 39-year-old. We could do this with literally every form of television or movie entertainment in the world. With me, because I watch well, minus nothing. minus kids current kids stuff. Oh, you want to talk Bluey? We'll talk Bluey. When, when are we going to do that dad's cartoon podcast? I was just talking. I just mentioned our damn kids movies and shows yeah. idea. Yeah, that might have a home on the Uncommon Media channel, Oof. and also check out everything. And you maybe you notice it in the last week from the new sports order is kind of shifting to the Uncommon Media. Facebook page, Uncommon Media VT. 
check it out. Sterling has been pumping out yeah. a lot of blogs or articles down this stretch run of football. Uh, he gave us another one today. We'll probably get up for tomorrow. Kind of Super Bowl reaction stuff. Give it a read, man. That guy can put words to page and fun references for yeah. people our age. Give it a look. I, I really do. I think I mentioned it. I really do enjoy editing through his columns and stuff every time that he sends stuff. And his top 10 list like of the best Super Bowls, I was like, yes, I remember all of these. This is actually the first year I haven't watched the Super Bowl in ever, I think. Um, was it any good? Yeah, it was. It was a close okay. game. A uh, bit of a controversial penalty right right at the end, but a good right. game nevertheless. All right. But I remembered when I was going through all that stuff and getting it set up for our, our Facebook post, I was like, man, this is quality. Yeah. The Rams. Remember that game? God. Yeah. That's the Titans. It was amazing. Yeah. Which I think for a lot of our listeners coming up sometime in the next month, uh, we'll have an episode with the top 10 Patriots games of all time. Wow. It's going to be Sterling, uh, our old friend from college, Rob Poindexter. They're going to argue. Good sports name. Yeah. Good sports and name. And I'm just, I'm just going to be the impartial judge, I think. At least that's what I was told, I like which is that. great. Yeah. I love, I good. love pe- other people coming up with ideas. Yeah. Heck yeah. Way to go, us. Mostly right. you. Well, in this sense. Yeah. You still post the stuff. All right. You still make all the posts. Yeah. Uh, you know, speaking of posts and not uh, a fun transition, obviously, Justin, you make our yeah. graphics yeah. every single week, and I'll, and you've mentioned it I don't know how many times how much, you know, the wards have meant to this show in terms of giving you access to photos. And unfortunately, they lost a member of that that family. Yeah, Andy Ward. I mean, he was the guy running the souvenir stand um, at Thunder Road on Thursday nights. Um, And along with Al Ward's wife, uh, Kathy, uh, Andy Andy lost. uh, You know what? I'm not going to say lost the fight because the cancer dies too, but uh, it's over. Uh, and we lost Andy Ward um, on uh, Sunday. And that was a tough one for, I mean, we can be selfish for this podcast and because we knew him, but, um, you know, that's a huge loss for racing. Massive, massive void will be will be felt from that whether you realize it or not, the, the big Al's photography website, you know, the big Al's smug mug page, uh, that's as much Andy as it is. Al. It's got Al's name on it, but Andy did tons, tons of work. I mean, like I think they're over a million photos now and imagine the effort that goes into scanning all the negatives from the early eighties. <laughs> you know, I mean, just unbelievable amount of effort to preserve the history and to keep the memories alive. And, uh, that's, yeah, that's a tough one. Um, it was also the third loss of the weekend for the racing community. Um, as I think Friday 
within a matter of hours, um, Donnie Gove passed and Jane Ryan passed. Um, Donnie Gove, you'll remember as the assistant flagger at Thunder Road, who was always with Mikey Wilder um, for years and years. Um, you know, he had cerebral palsy, so he appeared differently. Um, but his mind and his sense of humor was sharp as attack. He was hilarious. I got to be good friends with him. Uh, I don't know when it was, but when I was working for Tom Curley, so I, I got to know Donnie very well. And later on, he was over at Bear Ridge on Saturdays when I was working over there and became uh, reunited with him uh, for a year or two over there. And, and he was just a hell of a guy and also a six or seven time Vermont state go-kart champion. And the pictures from the eighties of him driving with his Richard Petty themed number 43. I mean, I'm not saying this to be crass, but it was alarming. It was jarring to see the pictures of him twisted sideways in the seat really um, because of the physical condition that he was in with his cerebral palsy. And he was kicking everybody's ass while doing it. Um, you know, he was the fastest guy in the state in a go-kart for a long time and built the Northeast cart club. And if you've ever heard of Bobby Therrien or, uh, Jimmy Hebert or the Potter brothers or blah, blah, blah. And of course you have, they all came out of Donnie Gove's program, um, and carding. So, a huge loss. And then Jane Ryan, the same day, um, she's the mother of Jimmy Ryan, wife of Clayt. Um, and she had a, a long road for several years. Um, and just always, you know, she's an, an iconic part of Devil's Bowl and the dirt racing community. And of course, they were at Bear Ridge and Canaan and Malta and Mohawk and or Frogtown back in the day. And uh, just, uh, yeah, it sucks that we're we're losing them. It sucks that we're losing them. Yeah. And, you know, this is something, you know, we never really do on this podcast. But, man, if you can, go help out somewhere. Even if it's, you know, something local and there's people who are trying. I know Williamstown just had their, you know, what is it, like Devils Beat Cancer Day where they had three basketball games and, you know, people are wearing pink and everything goes, you know, towards cancer and I think it hits home uh, for, for a lot of us, obviously I think everybody has to deal with it at some point. If you can get out and do a little bit, why not? Yeah. Be good to each other. Yeah, man. Yeah. Well, first time in a few weeks, we got story time coming up. Yes. Yeah, let's get into happier things. Um, story time. And uh, this was a fun one. This is a super fun one. I actually worked pretty hard on this one, too, doing research and getting it right. And, uh, it, yeah, enjoyable. Um, and I'm not even going to talk about it because you're going to hear it in a couple of minutes. But, um, and then also the our interview, <laughs> the main part of the show here with Kelly Harrison. What a friggin' ride we went on. Unbelievable, man. Yeah, I mean, I think, and you'll hear it in the interview, I think we ended up jumping around quite a bit, but that's fine. They were, And I just got done kind of editing it 
and going through it. And there's so many just good stories. And yes, maybe it's not completely chronologically correct, but who cares? Oh yeah. They're great stories and stuff we weren't expecting to hear. You know, I think it's the first podcast we've had in reference to, you know, a crane picking up a car out of a rice paddy in Hong Kong. What the hell? Uh, This guy has just done everything, and it's not an exaggeration. He has done everything. I don't know if he's done drag racing, um, but that's probably it if he hasn't done it. I'm sure he's Um, done it illegally. Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, I just don't even – it's still hard for me to digest all of the different disciplines in motorsport that he has been a part of and he's he built a car in his garage in chester vermont and brought it to lamont <laughs> like what that doesn't make any amount of sense but this guy that's right there with you guys you know building a car right here in vermont and bringing it to lemons <laughs> that makes more sense Oh God, just a super interesting guy and, um, started at Claremont, started at Monadnock and went to Lamont and went to Indianapolis and went to just everywhere. All the things went to a rice paddy in Beijing or Hong Kong or wherever they crashed. Just amazing. Reminder, we could not bring this show to you for free every single week without the help of our sponsors and, you know, Barry Tile has kind of become our OG, and they have been with us longer than anybody. And, you know, whatever we need, they say to to let them know. And Justin and I have said it all along. We're not going to put our name on crap. And Barry Tile gets the job done. Check out their Facebook page. They've been in business for so long that, they have earned the reputation they have, and they just they do it better than almost anybody. You know, I'm looking at the page right now as we talk about it, and I think our last whoa thing that we talked about was the um, the dog bowls. Yeah, with the in like re- in recessed the inside yeah. the yeah, um, real real cool. Um, but I mean, there's another uh, there's another couple of photos of this stupidly gorgeous kitchen and the the countertop this is like a 360 degree countertop with black granite Uh, just unbelievable and also informational uh they've posted a link to some article about marble and of course they're going to deal with a lot of stone you know granite being it's vermont hello um and and marble as well down towards this side of the state where I am, it says right here, a slab of Carrera marble can cost up to $400 per square meter. That's insane to me, but that means that they're working with quality stuff. They're doing it right. You know, I mean, this is, this is not entry level cheap stuff. If you need entry level, I'm sure they can pull that off for you, but they're not about that game. They're about high quality, quality over quantity. That's right. You got it. And speaking of quality, Bushies, generator sales and service. I mean, I don't think winter's over. No. We are, what, 
it's the eve of Valentine's Day. I remember being in college when we had the giant Valentine's Day storm. Is it 2006, 7, 5, Six, seven somewhere, somewhere in, that. in that general vicinity. Mm-hmm. And man, that thing was massive. And, massive. you know, fortunately, I didn't miss out on any plans because I was very much single and alone on Valentine's Day. So, yes. Keeping it keeping it positive here. Uh, but no, winter isn't over, and you don't want to be stuck without power. Give Bushies a call. And right now, till Memorial Day, $500 off. Boom. How do you not do it? And by the way, this whole show, this episode with Kelly Harrison came together um, as a direct result of our relationship with Ben Bushy. Um, they've been buddies and Ben was not the first guy who sent us information for Kelly Harrison that we should contact him. I think he was like the third or even the fourth guy, but Ben's the one that really connected us. And so thanks to him on top of being a sponsor, um, for getting us this, this show, but yeah, um, save $500, um, on a home standby generator, which as we've learned this winter is necessary. We've learned it several times uh, because the power keeps going out with these big, stupid storms. They don't happen all the time, but when they do, they're kicking our, our butts. You know, it's not fun, especially if you've got kids to come home to a frozen cold house with no lights and no heat and no anything. Not good. Yeah. But if you are having heat issues, mm. you need to call Pro Heat. Yeah. Proud sponsors of Storytime. Story time. And we missed them last week, so we're doing them this week and next week um, as well. Um, so, yeah. And again, when it was, what, 50 below wind chills? <laughs> what was that, a week ago, two weeks ago? Yeah, it was a week ago I'm, because now yeah. it's 45, which is right. 45 be below, 45 above to, yeah, 11 on yeah. Friday. Yeah. Good thing global uh, warming's not a thing. Oh. Um. So if you're in the if you're in central Vermont, if you're in the Montpelier area, East Montpelier, Barrie, Berlin, you know, all that footprint. Um, and if you're having trouble, ProHeat is the place you gotta go. And they also, I mean, not only do they do service calls and, and they can help you, they can also um get you upgraded stuff, um, brand new stuff and and maintain it for you. Um, furnaces and water heaters and heat pumps and boilers and you know, it goes on and on. Um, how long has MJ been doing this? It's over 20 years, right? 2002. What's math? 21 years. Uh, MJ Massetti. So, I mean, and by the way, everybody who supports this show clearly is a race fan and they're involved in racing and they know this game as well as they know their own, uh, their own industry. So hey, support them. They're, they're smart. And a cheap plug, go check out the Dan Gandon episode of No Fouls. Yes. You get a, a uh, MJ reference in there <laughs> good, worth listening to. Yeah. <laughs> a very good one. But uh, uh, now's a better time than ever for story time with Mr. Justin St. Louis. Look, Tom Curley always gets the credit for starting the spec touring movement in short track racing. But he shouldn't. He wasn't the first promoter to think of it, at least not in the Northeast. Let's talk about the Pro Truck Tour. 
Phil Rowe, who had previously been the general manager of Lee USA Speedway and the marketing director at Beechridge Motor Speedway, created the professional racing organization, PRO, Pro, with the goal of having an affordable touring series that left everything up to the drivers and the crew members doing the setups. He didn't want a team to be able to outspend the others by buying new this or lightweight that or trick whatever. Everything was to come prepackaged, sealed, and raced ready. Rowe struck a deal with Townsend Racing Products in Virginia to design, develop, and produce a fleet of race cars that could be affordable for teams, attractive to fans, and would aid in the development of a driver or crew chief looking to make the next step in their racing career. Fabricators Rick Townsend and Ricky Dennis went to work, but rather than create something completely new, they opted to reduce costs by using existing technology and designs. Based on a NASCAR Bush Series or Bush North chassis with truck arm rear ends, the design was already a proven formula. Because it was the late 1990s and pickup trucks were all the rage in racing, a composite truck body was hung on the thing, and it looked pretty sharp. Bill Rowe hired Maine's Butler and McMaster racing engines to build a power plant that was cheap, reliable, and unable to be fooled around with. Using a stock GM350, the Pro V8 package was born. A SEAL program ensured that teams would not mess with the expensive inner guts of it, and the only thing that they could fiddle with were changing the oil, adjusting the valves, and changing carburetor jets. The spec engine was born in New England for under $6,000 each, and rebuilds would cost less than two grand. Not only could you not mess with the motor, you couldn't change anything. Tires, wheels, shocks, springs, transmissions, clutches, rear ends, literally everything was specced out, much like today's NASCAR Cup Series. An entire pro truck, complete and race-ready except for the seat and safety equipment, was priced at 29995 Not bad at all. The first season was 1997, and Phil Rowe mapped out a very interesting nine-race schedule. The still-new White Mountain Motorsports Park in North Woodstock, New Hampshire, would host the first race on May 4th, pitting the trucks on a well-banked quarter-mile. Three weeks later, it was off to the Maine Seacoast and Wiscasset Raceway on a Sunday afternoon. Just six days after that, though, and about 500 miles west, the Pro Tour went to central New York for a weekend doubleheader. On Saturday night, it was the iconic 5 8 mile at Oswego Speedway, and on Sunday, it was the Evans Mills Speedway an hour north. On the first weekend of July, it was back east to the tiny Riverside Park Speedway in Massachusetts, followed at the end of the month by two more main stops, Oxford Plains and Speedway 95 near Bangor. Wiscasset had a second date in mid-August before a two-month layoff before the season finale, which was in October on the road course at the world-famous Lime Rock Park in Connecticut. The cost of the truck, the fact that it was something different with a truck body, and the diverse schedule created a big buzz in not only New England, but as far away as Ohio and Pennsylvania. Teams began ordering trucks, sponsors jumped on board, and even some marquee drivers were taking notice. The Pro Tour had a marketing deal with New England Dodge dealers that included a race-ready show truck, a souvenir trailer at every event, and a bonus championship program for Dodge teams. Some key officials were hired too, including race director and legendary former driver Bob Carvonen. And in that early World Wide Web period when precious few racing entities had an internet presence, Norm Marks built a classy website that contained gobs of information about the series, its sponsors, and its drivers. Things were looking good, so off to White Mountain they went, and a decent field showed up. James Brown, who was fresh off winning the late model championship at Lee USA in 1996, dominated the race by leading 95 out of 100 laps. Connecticut road racer Brett Rubinek finished second with a bit of a surprise, and main short tracker Steve Prescott took third. Former White Mountain track champion Billy Duggan was fourth, and former dwarf car racer Bill Morgan of Randolph, Vermont, was in fifth. Billy Duggan won the next round at Wiscasset with Brown second and Ticonderoga, New York's Jeremy Treadway, another road racer in third. By the way, I can see his house pretty much from here. Then Treadway won at Oswego with Steve Prescott taking the show at Evans Mills. James Brown was second in both of those races as well. 
James Brown won again at Riverside Park, and then it was Brett Rubinek at Oxford. Bush North star Andy Santer made a guest appearance at Speedway 95 and ripped off a win. Then Brown won again at Wiscasset, and Rubinek took the season finale at Lime Rock ahead of another Bush North star in Kelly Moore. Brown won the inaugural championship, and in nine races, he won three times, finished second five times, and his worst race, believe it or not, was fourth at the Lime Rock finale. Rubinek had two wins and finished second in the point standings, and Steve Prescott, with one win, was third. Immediately, the design of the pro truck began to pay dividends as both Brown and Rubinek made the jump up to the Bush North Series for 1998 after being successful with that NASCAR-style chassis. This opened the door for Steve Prescott to take the reins on the pro truck tour, and did he ever. The 98 schedule was expanded to 15 races at an impressive 14 tracks. New stops came at Jennerstown, Pennsylvania, Flemington, New Jersey, Canaan, New Hampshire, St. Croix, Quebec, Waterford, Connecticut, Monadnock Speedway in New Hampshire, and twice at the Thompson Speedway in Connecticut. Only Wiscasset did not return from the inaugural season. And along with the new tracks, a big new wave of drivers from all over the region came to the Pro Tour, including some very high-caliber teams. New Jersey racer Rich Lucas won the opener at Jennerstown ahead of Long Island, New York's Brian Chu, with Maine's Prescott in third, New York dirt racer Kenny Martin in fourth, and Vermont's Bill Morgan in fifth. Already, the schedule and the roster were offering major diversity for fans. Bruce Harrison of Billerica, Massachusetts, upset the field in the second race at Oswego, and new names in the top five that week were former National Legends champion and driver of all trades Joe Bates from Alstead, New Hampshire, and former American-Canadian tour driver Brent Dragon. The Steve Prescott show began in late June at the square-shaped Flemington track where he beat Bill Morgan for the win. He went back-to-back the next week at Canaan, and after a little burp at Riverside Park where Harrison won again, Prescott went back-to-back again at Speedway 95 and Evans Mills. Main legend Billy Clark, dad of future past star and Oxford 250 winner Cassius Clark, won at Oxford in early August, and Brian Chu won the series' first Canadian race at St. Croix the next week. Former Fonda Speedway and Mr. Dirt champion Kenny Martin got his first win at White Mountain in a wild finish over Brent Dragon, and then Prescott beat Dragon the next week at Thompson. Prescott yet again made it back-to-back wins by winning at Waterford, then Long Island's Chuck Stewart won at Monadnock. Martin made it back to victory lane at Thompson, and then Chu held off Prescott in the finale at Lime Rock. Prescott's gorgeous EJP number 03 Chevy held off Brian Chu by 50 points for the 1998 championship. Martin, Dragon, and Stewart completed the top five, and Brent Dragon won the Dodge Challenge Championship as the top driver with the Ram body on his truck. In 1999, the schedule was trimmed back slightly, but new stops were added at Holland Speedway near Buffalo, Seekonk Speedway in coastal Massachusetts, and Tioga Speedway outside Binghamton, New York. I won't go over every race again, but Steve Prescott stayed hot, winning five out of 13 races and grabbing 10 top fives. Brian Chu wasn't a full-timer, but he won three races. Pro Tour newcomer Doug Averill won three consecutive races, and Chuck Stewart won a pair as well. Prescott dominated the points, beating Mark Hebelink from Methuen, Massachusetts by more than 200 points. Hebelink was solid, though, with seven top fives, including several podiums. Uh, as a side note, this was the time period that the NASCAR 1999 computer game came out from Papyrus, and it included the truck series. I painted every Pro Tour truck in that game and raced it nonstop. Facts. Anyway, there were already some cracks in the foundation for the Pro Tour, though. Car counts were not totally predictable, and a race scheduled for the Watkins Glen Road Course in October was canceled due to fears of a short field. While the business model of building solid teams with a higher-level chassis and technology was an admirable one, it also proved to be the undoing of the Pro Truck Tour. As others before them had moved up to Bush North, so did Brian Chu in 2000, and the Prescott team jumped up even farther with a run in the NASCAR Craftsman Truck Series in 2000. 
There were considerable expenses with the Pro Tour, and some teams opted to go in other directions. Brent Dragon returned to ACT, Kenny Martin went back to dirt racing, and Seth Crocker, a solid racer whose sister Aaron was also a good runner, started to focus more on sprint cars while scaling back their Pro Tour efforts. In 2000s, things really started to slide. Twelve races were scheduled, but only seven of them were run, one of them because the track, Adirondack Speedway in New York, wasn't built yet. Fields thinned out, though a couple of strong new youngsters provided some great stuff on track as David Avery and Johnny Clark began to come of age. Clark won in his first Pro Tour start at Oxford, beating Doug Averill and a guy you might have heard of, Joey LeCare. Averill won at White Mountain and Seth Crocker won at Waterford. Then Avery went three deep on a tear at White Mountain, Beach Ridge, and Oxford. Crocker got the win in the season finale at Lime Rock, and Avery squeaked out the title over rookie Johnny Clark by 33 points. And then that was it. The Pro Truck Tour never ran another race. Four years, and it was over, just like that. Communication dried up completely, and there was no noise at all before 2001. It was during that period that ACT's Tom Curley began implementing the spec concept with its late models, and we all know that it's still going strong, of course. But let's remember that it all began with Phil Rowe's Pro Truck Tour. This edition of Storytime on Uncommon Deeds has been brought to you by our friends at ProHeat. We are in the dead of winter here in the north, and if you're cold at home now, or if you want to get ready for next winter, ProHeat of East Montpelier, Vermont is the only call you need to make. With 21 years in business and more than 30 years of experience in the industry, the staff at ProHeat are constantly learning and evolving and ready to tackle any and every situation in a hurry and get it right. ProHeat is a one-stop shop for sales, installation, and service of furnaces, oil tanks, gas, oil, electric, and hybrid water heaters, cold climate heat pumps, Vernice space heaters, gas and oil boilers, and more. For more information, visit ProHeat on Facebook or call the East Montpelier office at 802-479-9330 or call Michael John Massetti directly at 802-272-0964. Professional, reliable, on-time ProHeat. Now, let's meet today's guests. Believe it or not, this is our first Vermonter of the 2023 season here on Uncommon Deeds. That's a little strange, but this guy has been around the world. He has won races around the world. Um, he has driven everything. He has engineered everything. He has crew chiefed everything. And we're going to learn a lot more about him. But I think that the most interesting thing that I found in my research is that according to the Springfield Reporter on June 29th, 1960, he won a game of spud and he beat his brother, Andy. Um, so that's uh, the most interesting headline that we found about him in the research. But uh, welcome to Uncommon Deeds, uh, Kelly Arison. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Doing thanks well. For, thanks for joining us. Yeah, happy to do it. All right. Well, we uh, usually kick it off the same way, and that's asking you when you remember motorsports coming into your life. Well, when I was... Uh, 13 years old or so. I mean, I always loved cars when I was 13 years old or so. I'd hitchhike over to Claremont Speedway, which, of course, was still dirt. And I'd sit up in the grandstands and watch the jalopies run. And and I, and I would say, I know I can do that. I know I can do that. Nobody believed me, of course, but turned out I could. So that's about that's 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 the very, very first part of it. I'm, I'm interested in your history in Springfield and, and that area. Is, that's where my my mother and grandparents are from. And um claremont right. is a place that i don't know as well as i should and um especially the dirt era so what was that place like back then light bulbs hanging over the track suspended by wires and blowing in the you know blowing in the wind that the that the cars brought up and they were all flathead flathead coupes and sedans that sort of thing and i think uh sunny rabidou was a was the 
the big dog at that point, Cecil Bosworth, those guys. But remember, I was only, I was 13 years old or so. And it wasn't until I was about 21 that I drove my first car. And that's kind of a goofy story, too. Well, we love a good goofy story, so might as well roll right into it. Okay. Well, yeah, the first time I ever drove a race car, um, uh, my I was 21. My father-in-law had um, bought a Volkswagen Beetle race car. You probably don't remember that, but for a while, the there were Volkswagen-only classes that were really popular and uh, and uh, largely stock, but uh, gutted out and caged up, that sort of thing. Anyway, he uh, he bought one that had, hadn't been quite finished yet, and we finished it up and went to Monadnock, and Monadnock was dirt. I think it was their very first year, and uh, so we went down there to run in the all-Volkswagen class, which is the entry level, certainly, and uh, Monadnock didn't have enough water capability to keep the place watered down over the course of the night, and the fans were getting blasted with dust and so forth, so they didn't give us any warm-ups, any qualifying races, nothing. They just sent us out at the end of the night. I think there were 18 of us, but I was starting on the outside near the back. And uh, uh, the flag went down, and I floored the gas and uh, went down the front straight, got to turn one, and the thing was stuck right to the far. The throttle was stuck. So uh, you know, I wasn't going to quit, so I just took to the high side and went around a bunch of guys and down the back straight. And all the way down the back straight, I'm tugging at the pedal of my foot, and it won't come back, won't come back, won't come back. So I got into turn three and four and did the same thing, just went high to get around everybody. Nobody was running up in the high groove. And then down the front straight, and uh, it went 20 laps, green to checker, no cautions. And the thing stayed stuck to the floor all night through the whole race. And I won it, you know, by a mile. I think I lapped everybody but two guys. <laughs> and uh, so I, you know, went the next, you know, so the next two weeks, I, in a row, I won the next two. So I won three in a row because, you know, now I know how to do it. <laughs> just push your foot down and, and go. You know, they were so underpowered that you could just, you could run flat out and other guys didn't catch on to it and uh, so forth. And then I bought a V8 car and, and ran it down there. Uh, it was an old um, super modified. It was an early super modified. And I bought that running in the sportsman class and ended up winning a race. Last race of the year, I ended up winning that thing in the sportsman. So that was my first year of racing. And of course, for, you know, I won, uh, I won 50 bucks for each Volkswagen feature. And I think my take home pay at the time was $72. So, I thought, well, this is great. And then uh, the uh, for the sportsman feature, I won 150 bucks, so that's two weeks' pay. So I figured, oh man, I'm going to make my living doing this. <laughs> I had a lot. To, yeah, well, you've been right though. But you were fine. right about that. <laughs> well, I was. Yeah, it took me a while to get there, but yeah, it was. It took me another, you know, six, seven, eight years. But okay, so hold on when, here. So you're in your first race. You're what, 21 years old, you said? And the throttle yeah, hangs yeah. wide open. And I mean, you don't know what you're doing out there, right? Are you scared Not out clear. of your friggin' mind? Or are you just going with it? No, no, I'm just going with it. Cause I had, um, uh, my older brother bought a go-kart, you know, and I ran that around the schoolyard a million laps. And, and, uh, one of my sisters gave me a, when I was 11 years old, one of my sisters gave me a running 
48 Buick. I took it to a friend's farm and, uh, you know, just drove it, drove it, drove it. And I'd run out of gas. I'd hitchhike back into town again. And next time I had a dollar, I'd buy some more gas and go down and put it in, get it going. So I had a lot of, a lot of driving experience, uh, by the time I was 21, you know, raising hell on the farm and sliding sideways and so forth. So no, I wasn't scared. I just, uh, I just just went. I was, I was damned if I was going to quit. And all that income too. That's great. Um, what were you doing for work? <laughs> I was uh, uh, teaching school at the time. I was teaching uh, fifth and sixth grade, but I only did that for I only did that for about a year, and then I taught some other stuff for a while. But then I then I uh, really turned turned my focus toward racing, then stopped teaching. Were you always working on the cars at that point already? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, always, always working on them, and early on, you know, learned how to build build my own engines and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, yeah, they were always, you know, I was, uh, you know, I was just pounding away trying to get there every week I could. You know, I was trying to run Claremont and Monadnock with whatever I had and. And uh, I had some, I had some pretty lean years. I had that first year was great, and then, um, uh, and I ran, I ran well at uh, Claremont the next year. But then they, uh, they paved both tracks, and uh, I couldn't begin to keep up financially with asphalt tires, and you know they, things were really moving on then, and uh, so I was not very competitive. I tried to convert my dirt car to a to asphalt, and it just didn't work. And uh, so I got kind of, I kind of limped along like that. And then um, kind of a long story, but I got uh, some, some people I knew asked to borrow my, uh, my trailer. Cause I want to take a, a race car to Claremont. They had, I wasn't racing anything. So I loaned him that. And then he called me back a couple of days later and said, can I borrow your truck? And I said, sure. I'll haul it over for you. And it was just a six cylinder bomber thing. So the guy who was driving. it had never driven before. He did one warm up and got out of the car and said, I can't do it. I can't do it. And his fire suit fit me. So I went down and, ran this thing and then that turned into a pretty bunch of friends who put a bunch of money together and i built it but we in 78 i built a, a barracuda at the time chrysler was um was really promoting a short track program you know richard petty and dan gurney and both developed yeah, the cuda the kit cars uh, and all that stuff. exactly right and i went to a trade show in florida and met the chrysler engineers and uh and they were very, very. They were helpful. They uh, they told me they had some. They had torsion bars and swings and sh- springs and shocks and so forth for sale, and uh, camber change dimensions and so forth. You know, something I'd never even dealt with in the past, and uh, how to modify the upper control arm mounts to get to get the camber I needed, and um, and also some engine stuff. And uh, so I brought that back and built the car, finished up, and. And uh, it was just a monster. I ran, uh, I won 10 races that year. I won four at Claremont in the championship and six at Monadnock and wasn't even trying to run the championship there, but I only missed it by a point. And I won uh, three big open competition races at Monadnock where it was, uh, there was true to, to run what you're wrong. You got to, it had to be a, a sedan type body, but there was no limit on engines. I know uh, my, my favorite win, Mike Stefanik showed up with his Stafford car when he was really hot there and it was, he had fuel injection on it, eight stacks sticking up out of the hood. And uh, so I had a good race against him. That was, that was fun. How 
important is it for you to be able to do a lot of different things? And I mean it in the sense that, you know, we've talked to guys who run the street stocks at Thunder Road for 15 years and they're happy and they're content and they're good with that. But it seems like, you know, you look at everything you've done that you're constantly kind of looking for a different challenge and something different to try. Yeah, that's, that's definitely true. I mean, I won those races early on and, uh, and absolutely wanted to make it my career. No question. And, uh, after the 78 year was pretty good. The Mike Stefanik thing was kind of funny. And actually years and years later, he and I talked about it. Um, the, uh, it was a pretty good field of late models and uh, it was that open comp and I had modified tires on it and he had modified tires on his and so forth. And, um, I start, I don't know why, but I started behind him, but I, he got boxed in traffic right off the bat and I got by him and I came up through the field and uh, took the lead and I was lapping a couple of guys and they were, they were pretty slow and, but they were running side by side around the whole damn track. And, uh, and, uh, I could see Mike, I could, I could see Mike, you know, coming through the pack. And so he's passing more guys, more guys, more guys. And he's break. I can see him ready to break out and get ready to chase me. And these guys, uh, the flag man wouldn't give him the, wouldn't give him the passing flag. So I, I put my bumper against the guy on the inside and pushed him down the straightaway, but he was just got all squirrely. And so then the next lap, I pushed the guy on the outside all the way down the straightaway just to try to break him up, not to spin him, but to let one of them pass the other so I could get through him. And, uh, uh, they were both so squirrely. I knew I, I was going to crash if I tried to do that. So I just held on and Mike broke through the broke out of the pack. And I, and I said, well, this is going to be a big, big battle when he gets here. And he stayed back there. And I'm thinking to myself, he must've dropped the cylinder or something. Cause he's not coming. And I went to, and so I, so I won it and the flag came down and I pulled up to take the checkered. And so did he, he thought he'd won it. He saw these three cars that he thought were lapped cars banging in and one guy was banging into the other two. And he said, I'm staying away from that. So he stayed where he was and uh, didn't know that he wasn't leading the race. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, it was great. (laughs) And years later, Robbie Patterson was working for me and Robbie called him. I mean, uh, Robbie and Mike were, were, he called me at my, he called for Robbie at my shop. And, uh, and so they're chatting away and, uh, Robbie says, I got, you know, I'm working for Kelly Arison. I said, Oh, uh, Mike. And, and he said, you want to talk to him? And Mike got on the phone. He goes, you remember that, that damn race at Monadnock? <laughs> he said, and that's when he told me that, uh, he thought we were just the lap. We were just tail end cars banging into each other. And so he backed off so he wouldn't get caught up in the crash. So anyway, I took the money home that night. <laughs> that's good. Bragging good. rights right there. You beat Mike Stefan yeah. NASCAR hall of famer, Mike Stefanik, yeah. right? Yeah. Is he? Oh, geez. Is he not? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I think even if those guys hadn't been there, my feeling is I'd have won. Because uh, I, you know, I really knew that track and the, the car worked great. And, and I knew the track and had a lot of confidence. So I, I, yeah, I wish we had battled it out. But anyway. Like Tom said, you're kind of bouncing around to different things. And that was 78, you said? Yeah. Yeah. So. And and I did find some stuff on 78. And then I see in 79, you're with Bill Alsop. We had Nipper on the show, uh, I don't know, a year ago. And, uh, yeah, you know, uh, you're, you're, you know, that's a huge leap from a late model at Monadnock to an IndyCar 
at Indianapolis Motor Speedway, yes. right? Or, you know. Yeah. So how how in God's name did you apply the knowledge of a you know a kit car or whatever it was to wings? You know, I mean what was there any preparation or was it just trial by fire? And and how did that happen? Well it was it was it was trial by fire, but um but not a bad situation. Uh that year that I won all the races, um I was using you know, Robbie Patterson was running Bill Ossop's engine shop in Woodstock, and uh, I built on my I built my own engines. But Robbie did my cylinder head work, and he did some machining on the uh, on the uh, intake manifold that Chrysler had recommended, and um, uh, and then I freshened it up halfway through the season, so he did the heads again and that sort of thing. So we got to be we got to be good friends, and and uh, and Bill was going to run the the Indy car out of that shop, and so Bill was looking for guys to the man the thing and Robbie said well here's a guy that's been pretty successful and builds his own stuff and why don't you try him so uh Bill called me went up and talked to him and he hired me and uh I'd also started that year I was also I also got a got a drive in a modified um so I was trying to drive a modified in between doing 16 races on the road and all that kind of stuff the Indy 500 that didn't work out very well just didn't didn't have enough time to really get the car dialed in, but but um, so anyway, so I went to work on a team, and I wasn't the chief mechanic, um, but Robbie was there, and uh, just you know, just how you got to bear down and, and look at it. it's all it's all nuts and bolts, and uh, so I just my main thing was don't make any mistakes, just don't make any mistakes, and the guys were good. I mean, the, the guys were pretty good about teaching me what was going on. There were there was one of the mechanic and Robbie Patterson there. And the other mechanic uh, had some IndyCar experience. He was the chief, and uh, you know, over the course of a of a year or so, I was I got pretty competent, and uh, and I just listened, you know. And Dan had bought the car from Dan Gurney, so Dan came around some to help out, and I talked to him, and he was very forthcoming with uh, suggestions and so forth. So it was a uh, it was good, but I stayed with him for four years, and and by the end of it, I was we'd, we'd had some great seasons. You know, we were he was rookie of the year, and then he was uh, most improved uh, the next year, and then the third year came in second in the national championship. And we're talking Mario Andretti and Rick Mears and the Unser brothers and that kind of thing. We came in second because of consistency, and uh, and plus I've been on the I've been on the tour tour now which is pretty intense for four years, four seasons. And people knew me and um, I was able to move on from there. I will, I, I guess I should say that uh, also I made it clear to Bill that I, that I was a, a driver, you know? And so before I agreed to sign on for the, for the, for the fourth year, I, 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 I said, look, I got to, I'm not driving race cars. You know, I lost my modified deal and I got to drive race cars. And so I'm going to quit. And he said, well, well, I'll tell you what, if you stay on this next year, I'll let you test my my PC7 IndyCar, backup car. And I said, okay, I'll go for that. You know, that's a pretty big deal. Season went on, and I mean, it was, I don't know. I, there's, it's a big story. I don't want to bore you with it, but I ended, I did run it at Phoenix. Please, please bore us with it. And it's not boring either. I mean, <laughs> you're driving in, you're driving a freaking IndyCar, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, it was kind of cool because Bill was not that interested in it, really. There was one chance... Where this was our backup car, but it was a Penske PC7. It was a good car. It was two years old. 
and it wasn't it was never going to win a race again but it was a good reliable good reliable car uh, it relied on having enough engines ready and that kind of thing and and uh, we'd blown some engines and so we were kind of anyway when it came down to get to, to go to the last race the car wasn't had no engine and so Robbie Patterson and Wayne Ferguson agreed to make one out of all the junk parts of all the other cars. These are Cosworth V8s. So they just offered to build one for me just out of the, out of the, the, uh, you know, the parts that had been, that had been timed out that we wouldn't use normally. And uh, I think uh, I loaded the, you know, we loaded the car up with no engine at, at uh, 11 o'clock at night. I went home, got a shower, got back there about uh, five o'clock in the morning. And when I got there, Robbie and Wayne were uh, were pushing a Cosworth motor into the and tying it down in the trailer for me. They'd stayed up all night long and finished it. And so we got out to Phoenix and and uh, we tested the Bill's. He drove his PC nine car, and uh, we stopped testing early on the first day because he was out of tires. We didn't have enough tires, and uh, and he said, "I can't go any faster. These things are shot. Every set we had was shot." And so he took off off and uh the guys on the crew a couple of interesting guys one was uh barry altahan who went on to become ayrton senna's chief mechanic in formula one and 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 dan and uh, michael coit who had worked for the williams formula one team uh we stayed up most of the night put the engine in the thing got it got it ready to go got to the phoenix the next day and bill wasn't going to test because there were no tires left he wasn't even at the track so he put the best of his junk tires on and uh, and I did uh, I think I did eighty nine laps. I would have qualified eighteenth for the race that was coming up that weekend, and I was only two tenths behind Bill's fastest speed in the new car, and when he had new tires on. So good run. Was there so. a lot of pressure or nerves involved in that moment when you know, okay, we're on the junk tires, and this may be my one and only shot to get behind the wheel of this thing. Oh yeah, <laughs> sure. Sure. You know, uh, I, by this time I, I was really familiar with indie cars, you know, they didn't scare me. You know, I understood them, you know, I knew what we had for turbo boost. I knew where the wings were set, that kind of thing. And so I said, well, this, this should be okay. But I had really very little idea about how to, uh, about what it was going to feel like. And I, I'd, I'd spoken to, um, to uh, Rick Mears the, the day before and uh, said, well, I think I'm going to test tomorrow. You got any, any suggestions? And he said, well, here at, here at Phoenix, you know, you got to roll out of the throttle, you know, especially going into one, but three, two, you got to, you got to roll out. You got to slow down a little bit and brake." He said, but, but the turbo, the turbo loses RPM. And so you get turbo lag coming off. He said, so what I do is I roll out partially and I feed a lot of brake into it. And he said, you won't run out of brakes, you know, in a, in a 200 lap race here. And so, so you roll out of the, roll out of the throttle and feed a bunch of brake on more brake than you normally would. Then when you get back on the throttle, the boost is right there. And so I did that and that worked out fine. Uh, I got the hang of it and that's, you know, it was pretty cool. You know, I mean, I think the guys were pretty, were pretty shocked that I was going that fast and, Dan, uh, Dan, uh, Jerry Iser was the chief mechanic then, and he was a veteran. He'd been, he'd been with Dan Gurney for years and that kind of thing. And he was the chief and he was kind of shocked, but, uh, there was a strange outcome with that whole turbo boost, left foot breaking, that kind of thing. But so 
when you're going to drive Indy cars, Simpson, you know, Bill Simpson, Simpson safety equipment. Sure. Yeah. Just gives you everything, gives you everything. And so I'd spoken to Bill. And uh, so I had a, a brand new four layer fire suit and the underwear and all this, you know, you know, better stuff than I'd ever had a brand new helmet, balaclava, gloves, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and, and brand new shoes. And he, he come up with this new design on the shoes. And what it was, he had a flat piece of, of rigid leather on the bottom of them. And the leather stuck out around the, the whole outline of the shoe by about three, three sixteenths, quarter of an inch. And it was kind of weird. I didn't, I never knew really why he did it, but he abandoned it quickly. And, um, cause everybody hated them, uh, because you could, uh, you could, when you're heel towing and so forth, you could catch that lip with with the, with your foot and make the other foot do something. So anyway, back the wrong way. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, and so anyway, so I so I get into turn three. I don't know how fast I'm going. You know, well over a buck ninety or so, and a lot of G loads there. And I've been in the car for you know a lot of laps, and so I rolled out of the throttle going into turn three, and then fed some brake on. But the my left the the sole of my left shoe caught the stick the sole of my right shoe and gave it big plastic ass, you know. And I'm in the turn under the braking zone and the and the thing gets a big blast of gas, and uh, and I started started heading right for the wall, so I so I just cranked it to left to spin it because I didn't I, I I didn't want to hit it head on because that was those that was the days when you got hit on you lost your feet you know they all crumpled up like nothing yeah. and so I spun it. And I remember now, I remember going through the turn, going into the turn, and I'm looking backwards, right? And uh, all four tires are locked up. And all four tires are, are are putting these rolls of smoke coming off them, you know, in the distance. And uh, so I could see it was all four of these four smoke trails getting smaller and smaller behind me, you know. And, and uh, anyway, so I flipped the wall and, and tore the car up some. Uh, not too, too bad. I, I had to fix it, of course. But it's pretty cool. I mean, it was a bummer. To, it was a bummer that uh, that I nicked it. But here's another part of that. So all the guys, you know, guys at the racetrack, we're getting ready for a race. You know, a race starts the next day, warm ups and stuff, and um, and a whole bunch of the trucks were, were coming in on that day I was testing. So a whole bunch of guys, you know, were saying, "Oh, who's that in Allsup's car?" And they're saying, "Well, it's Kelly." It's that. And so they all saw it, and when they saw me crash, they all knew it, and. Uh, so the next day, we're we're practicing it with the, with the nine car for the regular thing, and I come back from a from a practice session, and there's like two left side wheels and uh, and a side pod, a side pod sitting in the trailer from PC Seven because everybody had them. They sold a bunch of them, and they had and, and guys were using them as their spare cars and had spare parts, and so guys were just giving me just showing up without a word, just giving me all this stuff because they could see what was hurt on the car, and uh, that went on all weekend. And uh, by the time I left there, I only needed a, few, needed a few more parts. Tim Richmond told me that he had a bunch of stuff at his dad's place in Ohio. So I, I stopped there and picked up a bunch of other stuff to, so I was able to, I mean, it still cost me, you know, 30,000 bucks to fix it. But, but a lot of the stuff, it, it would have been 70, 80,000 probably, you know, at the time I was making, I was, making, I was making 28,000 a year. <laughs> so, What's the adrenaline dump? Like after that, when you've gone yeah. 190 miles an hour for 80 laps. 
Uh, well, the thing is, I mean, I, you know, on the last lap, I, I stuffed it. And uh, so I was pretty bummed out. Uh, and uh, But between sessions, I got I got in and out of the car several times. And I, I got to tell you that um, I was pretty calm about the whole thing. You know, I, you know, after, after 10 laps, I realized, okay, I got this, you know, I, I understand it. And, um, you know, don't oversteer, don't overcorrect, you know, be precise, you know, draw, uh, you know, choose your line and stick to it. And so I was pretty, I was really psyched. Um, but I was fairly calm about it. You know, you gotta, when you're driving any car well, you got to be reasonably calm. You know, you got to be just paying attention to the nuts and bolts of the whole thing. So, uh, but then uh, afterwards, uh, you know, I was bummed out. I wish it had ended differently. And Bill was pretty pissed because when he got to the, when he got to the to the track the next day, guys were kidding him, saying, "Hey, your mechanic was out running you." And it wasn't. I was two tenths slower, but your your mechanic was out running you in your backup car, and. uh, he did not take that well. <laughs> so, God, I'm just I'm fascinated with the idea of drawing on muscle memory from racing a Volkswagen Beetle on dirt at Monadnock and your throttle stuck to trying to not lose your feet in an Indy car at, at Phoenix. Right? It's <laughs> there's not a lot of guys on the planet that can make that direct line. <laughs> but yeah, what? So how, where do you go from there? I mean, it's what what do you do next? Yeah, well, I spent I spent the next year trying to raise the money to go indie car racing because I knew enough guys now that I knew where I could rent a ride, and uh, just didn't have any have any real luck getting there. I, I uh, well, there's one company that had a big cable television place in the Midwest, and I'd met them at, at Indy, and uh, and uh, they said, "Yeah, we want to sponsor you." You know, so we talked about it and and so forth. Yeah, we're, hey, we're having a big company uh you know company meeting and celebration in indy so they flew me out there and they introduced me as their indycar driver the next year and and uh they're supposed to give me so many dollars and they sent me five grand and then never heard from them again <laughs> so turned out that they were going broke and the two guys that owned it were had big big ideas but couldn't make it happen so that was disappointing but uh and I had some other. I, I had one really good. If I had found fifty thousand bucks, I'd have been. I'd been in, in uh, Danny in Danny on on Gaius's second car with Jerry Ice at running it for fifty grand, and just I couldn't come up with it. So that seems like short but, money. Uh, I mean, you know, fifty grand. I don't have fifty grand, but that doesn't seem like a lot of money to go race an Indy car for the year. Well, remember this. We're talking eighty three. In 1983, and it was well. Jerry, well, first of all, the deal with Angaius is that Ted Field had the money, and and Ted was a fabulously wealthy guy, inherited from his father. And Jerry had run a lot of cars for Danny, and Ted didn't know where the money was going, didn't care, you know. And so, if I gave Jerry fifty grand, he'd split it with Danny, and you know, so the whole use of the car was a wash. Um, they got they got the car for free. They hadn't paid for it. They could use it for free, and um, and they'd make some money. Of course, it cost cost some money to you know pay for tires and fuel and all that kind of stuff. Of course, but uh, they could make some money on it. But uh, yeah, it just didn't just didn't happen. But uh, that's okay. It was cool. And and the thing is, it was there's this big thing about it. you go to Indianapolis and um, 
you can't just show up there and declare you're going to run the race unless you've got some experience. And I, all I had was some experience in that thing. And so you've got to, you got to apply to get your rookie license to get a rookie test. And normally I wouldn't, but I had enough guys who knew me at that point, including Jerry, who said, no, I think this kid can do it. And so Indy agreed to let me run the rookie test. You got to pass the rookie test. And then if you pass, you get to, you get to try to qualify. So, you know, at least, uh, you know, enough guys, enough guys had faith in me at that point and at that level that, uh, you know, Indy would let me let me try it anyway. So that was cool. What does a rookie test look like, or what are they looking for? Well, they yeah they want uh, they want they want consistency. They want you to be able to to set a specific speed. I mean, this is how it works. It's weird. You go out and they want you to do five laps at one seventy, and then they want you to do five laps at one eighty, and come in, you know, after each one, and then they want you to go out and do you know depending on how fast the car. Is a run of that year then they want you to do five laps at 190 and they want and they just want to observe you how smooth you are and if you're choosing choosing good lines if you're if you're where you shouldn't be if you're breaking in the wrong spot or not you know whatever it wasn't a lot of breaking at that point because they were ground effects cars but they just want to see you know can this guy run first at 170 does he look like a dork at 180 is he okay at 190, is he competent? And that's about all it is. And they have a whole <laughs> bunch of guys. They have, uh, they usually have uh, two established IndyCar drivers who would be there to watch it. And you had to pay them something to it. And they, they each got 500 bucks from each driver or something. But it, Was um, it like a bracket? Were you limited to 170? Or was it go as fast as you can go and hopefully you get to 170? No, no. I mean, at that at that point, 170 was just cruising. It was not, no big deal. Um, they want. They don't want to say how fast you go. They they want to. First of all, you got to figure out with the gearing you got and the RPM you're doing. You got to basically. You, there's no speedometers, of course. You got to you got to maintain a certain RPM and and try to maintain it for five laps in that area. I mean, they're not going to be nuts if you're doing 169 or 172 as long as you're in a narrow window. They just wanted to know that you're competent to drive a car, not freaking out. You could. You could monitor things. You could tell, you know, where you were on the tack and so forth. And uh, and at that time, one ninety was a fairly easy thing to attain. Uh, so one seventy five laps, watch me. One eighty, okay. Now you got to use a different uh, a different RPM for the same gear and top gear. And uh, then if you did that, okay, one ninety. And, and at that point, not every car was going to average one ninety, and this one probably. Might have, um, but they want you know. If, let's say all you can do is one eighty eight or something like that. As long as you can maintain that for for five laps, you know, which would you know, be your theoretical top speed. They just wanted to. They just wanted to judge. Yeah. You know, if you were basically competent, they didn't care if you were super fast. They want to make sure you're competent. Well, it's it's nice that you had that backing. Um, there at least the emotional support and the and the sign. The, you know, the signatures that you needed to to get there. Um. Oh, yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah, that's uh, huge. If you've got a home project going on, your first stop should be Barry Tile and Morrison Clark Incorporated. From flooring to kitchens, from bathrooms to outdoor projects, from your home to your business, they are number one in central Vermont. As you've heard on this show, 
Justin and I are officially middle-aged super dads now. And one of our favorite hobbies is looking at the Berry Tile Facebook page to see their latest projects. I love the carpeting and hardwood flooring, and he loves the kitchen countertops and shower installations. And it's true. Berry Tile has been family owned for 50 years and their experience shows in every single job. It's high quality work by highly qualified people who can design and install everything you need to upgrade your home or office. It's not a big chain store. It's local people with common sense and a ton of skill. Be like us and check out the Berry Tile Facebook page to see some examples of their incredible work. Or you can give them a call at 802-476-0912. You can also stop into the showroom at 889 South Barry Road in Barry, Vermont, and tell them that the guys from Uncommon Deeds sent you. This winter has certainly reminded us of what it's like to be without electricity, and it's no fun at all. So don't let it happen again. Call Bushy's Generator Sales and Service so that you and your family are ready for the next storm. Whether it's Kohler or Briggs & Stratton, Bushy's is Vermont's leader for home standby generators and for Briggs & Stratton portable generators. With manufacturer-certified technicians, free in-home estimates, factory warranties, service after the sale, and 0% financing all available to you, it's easy to see why Bushy's is number one. And they're doing it again, by the way, when you call Bushy's Generator Sales and Service between now and Thunder Road's Memorial Day Classic, mention that you heard this ad on Uncommon Deeds and save $500. Bushy's Generator Sales and Service covers all of Vermont and New Hampshire, as well as Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New York. Give them a call at 802-591-1903 or visit their Facebook page or bushysgenerator.com. Bushy's Generator Sales and Service of Springfield and Brookfield, Vermont. We keep your power on. So you you were with on Gaius for a while, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, and he uh, was a Jerry big deal. hired me. Wow, man, that guy could that guy could wheel. I'm telling you, that guy was that guy was unbelievable. If he hadn't got hurt, he'd have won a ton more races than he did. Um, but he got hurt really bad a couple of times. Um, yeah, uh, after after the Allsup thing. I never worked full time for a team again. I worked as a con- as a contractor, and somebody called me up and said, "Okay, we got the, we got money for for Indy and five races. We're putting together a team. We want you to be a mechanic." And then later it was, "We want you to be the chief mechanic." And then later it was, "I want you to be the team manager." And we and Jerry Eisert was doing a lot of this, and he'd put together a team of guys, and uh, and we'd run that whatever races were were uh, were funded and uh we had some very good success and people got to know me even more and so then people started calling me and saying can you put a team together to do xyz and so i did some indycar work like that um i did some work for al holbert on his porsche 962s uh that's how i got the le mans deal that we did later on yeah please talk about that that's uh again not too many guys drove a Volkswagen Beetle on dirt at Monadnock and went to Le Mans. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we ran that whole program right out of my shop in, in, uh, it's actually Chester, but it's Springfield. Yeah. And, um, and I opened that shop years before just to bring all the work I was doing, you know, people would hire me to do stuff and I'd go to Wisconsin or Southern California or someplace to do these things. And, um, and I figured, well, if I had my own shop, I could bring all the guys there instead of, instead of you know bringing them all to los angeles or something so so um the uh 
the Le Mans car is one of the cars that we that we did uh, did out of my shop, and it was a Riley and Scott. And we ran the the twelve hours of Sebring in Florida as a, as a we were, well. First of all, we we ran the twenty four hours of Daytona, but we didn't have our car there. It was just I was down there, and the guys that were going to run Le Mans had rented another similar car to ours, and I was just down there to be part of the team and, and get the hang of that car and learn more about it. And then, uh, so we put this new Riley and Scott car together and went to went to uh, went to Sebring and then brought it back to Vermont and did some maintenance on it and tore it all apart to put it in an airplane and then flew it to to France. And we, uh, when you do Le Mans, if you're a new team, it's kind of funny because our, our 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 three drivers were veterans, but it was a newly a newly assembled team that this guy named Yohiro Tarada from japan had put together under a new name it was the first time he'd owned a team he'd been he'd been uh he was a good driver uh but uh he's a guy who would put together the mazda the mazda 24-hour team that won it and he was a mazda employee but anyway uh you'll hear found some money uh hired frank freon who i'd run at indy at an indy car and um and then frank suggested me so so they hired me to run it and uh so we got over to Le Mans and we had to run um because we we're a new team we had to do pre-qualifying so it's sort of like the Indy test you, you show up when only or the only cars there are going to be cars and teams that have never run Le Mans before and if you pass that which we did easily um then uh two weeks later you start qualifying and qualifying, you know, the practice and qualifying, that's about a two-week process. And then essentially a week off and you and then you run the race. And we 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 took the car down to Paul Ricard and tested it down there a couple of times. But anyway, so we were also running a uh running a modified on the modified tour for my son Tim. And so we'd go to France for two or three weeks and fly back and run the modified at Loudon, and then fly back to France. My son was working with me full time on the team. And uh so we did pre-qualifying, then we flew back into the qualifying, and then flew back and ran the modified race, I think, at Watkins Glen, and then flew back for the for the race. Good God! So we were, uh, yeah, it was a it was a, a a heavy summer, racking up those frequent flyer miles. Yeah, right, right. How did you end up working in England? Yeah, it was well. I don't know. I was in England for about six months, but. Uh, Porsche had wanted to go, decided to go IndyCar racing, and, and Al Holbert had had talked him into it, and uh, and I'd done some work for Al and got along with him really well, really good guy. But um, Porsche built their own chassis and their own and their and their own engines, and they hired Mario Andretti to drive it. So get this: so Mario, I don't know if he flew to Germany or if the car was at uh, Al's shop in Pennsylvania, but Mario showed up. And, and and two guys there told me this story. He said he walked around it clockwise, then he walked around it counterclockwise and said, "I'm not driving it." <laughs> and uh, so they got Al Unser to drive it. Anyway, the car, the car was a complete turkey, and so Porsche was embarrassed. And so so I don't know how they decided to do it, but they decided to ask March Engineering in England, which is, had made some very successful cars, and I'd run some of their cars to build the chassis. And uh, Al Holbert suggested I go over and midwife the whole thing. So I went over and I was the, the project manager. It was pretty cool because March, the only thing March was doing was four cars for Porsche. And 
well-established. They've been, they'd run formula one cars and Indy cars and one Indy and that kind of stuff. And, uh, so I got over there and just had to dovetail into that whole machine they've got over there, which was really fascinating. And so as I was there for, I don't know, quite a while. Anyway, so we got the cars. You know, I had to I had to work with the design office, uh, you know, to understand the prints and the drawings and what they were attempting to do. And then I'd have to talk to the, the then I'd have to take stuff over to the mach, the machining centers and the carbon fiber guys and the wind tunnel guys and the fabricator guys and coordinate it all and make sure that the parts were there when they needed to be in the right sequence, that kind of thing. That was fun. And that was good with, that was, uh, the engines were not good. The, um, they had a lot of torque, but they didn't have any, that kind of top RPM that the Indy cars need. And the only race we won that year was at mid Ohio, but we did win one car, one race with those cars. That was fun. That was good. Interesting, interesting thing to do. Made some money for a change. (laughs) That was good. Kelly, if I can interrupt, did you go to college or is this, I mean, are you learning on the fly? I mean, you're, you're studying arrow and your, your geometry and all these different things that take a big brain. Is this something that you prepared for on purpose or did it just happen? Uh, I certainly did not prepare for it on purpose. You know, my, my, my college degree was in sociology. <laughs> so um, uh, I'll tell you what, after winning those, those the, the 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 Volkswagen races and then that one in the in the dirt super, I was just determined to uh, to get good at it. And so I bought all the Steve Smith books, you know, all the yep. race car tuning yep. stuff, and uh, bought them all, read them all over and over again, and um, you know, uh, bought some tools, you know, uh, made my own uh, bump steer gauges and that sort of thing, and just learned how to do it. And I just you know, I knew it was important. And so I just, it was all self-taught. When we got in Indian cars, there were a lot of guys. Robbie Patterson was was a tremendous help to me. That guy was a genius. I don't know if you know who he was, but he was the, he was the brains behind Bill also. And, you know, you just, if you love it and you're determined to make a, you know, to keep going in it, you just work hard and learn and make it happen. When you're in England, at least recently when you think kind of overseas England, you think F1, did you ever Mm -hmm. have any type of aspirations or want while you were over there to try to tinker with an F1? Well, that's, I'm glad, yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Um, I worked with a whole bunch of um, Formula One mechanics who had come into the IndyCar series and uh, they were good guys, smart guys, hardworking guys. And um, they said, it sucks. He said, he said, you're not supposed to have fun. You're not supposed to enjoy it in the shop, at the track, whatever. If you're laughing, if you're joking, you catch hell. It's so deadly serious. And um, it's just no fun. You know, sure, if you win, you can you can celebrate. But at all other times, it was dead serious. And um, so they had come to IndyCars, and, they, and to a man, they said, this is so much fun. You know, it's back to what racing's supposed to be. It's guys you know, the teams don't hate each other and the, and the guys, you know, you'll loan somebody something if they, if they need it, you know, you'll help other guys out, you know, to a certain extent. So I wasn't really much interested in it. But I went, went over there March, March was, was, uh, had for years had been in, in a little town called Bister and there were a couple of formula one teams there too. And so I, you know, once in a while I have time I'd go to lunch at the, 
at the local tavern and, and sit and talk to these guys. And they all were miserable. You know, they wanted to be there because of the prestige, but they were all miserable in it. So, no, I, I really, I appreciate Formula One cars, but I never had any real interest getting into them. I mean, it's got to um, be fun, you know. Yeah. Why, why do it? Why to do it if you're miserable? That's right. I feel like we didn't quite get to the end of the Le Mans story and also running a modified with your son at the same time. How did all that end up? I mean, how did you do? Well, it didn't. The uh, the engine pitched at ten hours and one minute. It was a actually it was a four V eight using mostly Winston Cup parts that was assembled by a by a French engine building company that made a name in rallying, and um, they had uh, they were using um, uh, Jessel roller rockers, and Jessel had failed to um, to harden the inner races of the uh, where the bearings ride on the roller rockers, and so the rockers failed. And uh, I talked to Jess when I got back to the States and said, what was the story with that? He says, yeah, we had to run a bad once. I said, well, you, you could have let us know. He said, well, the Winston Cup cars found it on the dyno. You guys should have found it on the dyno. <laughs> you know, instead of calling them and saying, hey, we got a problem here. Yeah, that was it, 10 hours and ten hours and one minute. It's obviously a letdown, but is it like, ugh, or is it, man, we did this out of our shop. <laughs> Um, you know, what's, uh, there's gotta be some different emotions there. Well, we had a rough month there, you know, yeah, it was, uh, uh, car caught fire once a, a fitting, you know, which just had, it only had Sebring on it, a fitting broke loose. And, uh, we had an engine fire there and, uh, pretty good fire. And it, uh, it hurt the fuel cell. We had to pull the car apart. We were up the night before the, there was a last there's a last practice the day before the race starts and that's when that happened and so we stayed up all night long fixing it and now we got to run a 24-hour race we were all just dead tired and so when the, when the car broke we're all thinking we weren't going to win it anyway <laughs> so let's go get some sleep i enjoy kind of reading or watching videos from the pike's peak hill climb tell us a mm-hmm. little bit about going electric the hill climb well that was kind of cool it was actually a, a, a an old guy a guy i know not an old guy he's a little bit younger than i am but uh this guy named charlie greeno had been in vermont for a while and was now in pennsylvania and and he bought a bunch of old uh sccr scca um they used to be called sport sport Renault. Renault was they all were they were they were all identical, and it was a very popular class, And but the class had waned, and so he bought a bunch of those and converted them to electric. He did it, and he just called me and said, I'd like you to be the sort of the manager running three three teams there. I didn't have anything to do with building them. He um, was pretty clever. He used a midget, uh, midget quick-change rear with independent rear suspension, you know, the, and uh, I test drove one at, at Palmer uh, just to get the feel for it. It was pretty cool. It was, had a lot of torque. Um, and he had, uh, had Tim O'Neill from Maine, the rally guy. Oh yeah. Was one of the drivers. And, uh, Rick Noop, who won Lamar years ago, was one of the drivers. And the other guy was, uh, a local guy who had helped Charlie out a lot and, and uh, raced SCCA cars. And so he got in the third car. Uh, but, uh, Life Speaks, another whole experience, man. That is, that's the most dangerous race I've ever seen. And, uh, the scariest course I've ever seen. And, uh, I mean, I really enjoyed it, but it was, uh, man, I, you know, I, end, I ended up driving up down the mountain, you know, 10 or 12 times in the rental car 
because they stagger they they stagger practice. You know, like a third of the field practices on lower third, another third of the field entry field practices in the in the middle section, and another the remaining group practices from this you know from the middle to the top, and then the next day it all switches around, rotates, so everybody gets. But but you never get to do a run up the mountain until race day. But um, yeah, it was fun. It was cool, uh, and I drove up and down a lot. And actually, the, the second year we were second year we were there, I, I got to know some guys. I'd ran them the year before, and I got to know some guys who had a uh, a, a car in the unlimited class. And for the, essentially, there are no rules. They got some safety stuff, but there's no rules. Run whatever you brung, any 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 cars, any whatever. And these guys had a pretty good car, but it was, but it, but they didn't have any any ground effects under it. There was no ground effect. Uh, aerodynamics under it and i looked the car all over and i said you know this it would work on this car and so they said well if you'll if you'll come down to colorado where the cars are built and and just show us how to do that um we've got a second brand new car coming we'll we'll have you drive that here in next year and i thought about it for a couple of days and uh you know if i'd been 50 years old or something i'd have done it but not at 69 <laughs> or whatever but uh, yeah, because it's just too crazy. The first year there, a guy died, and there are so many places to die. And you got to be on your game. You know, you can't be, you can't be fooling around. You know, you can't be fooling yourself about whether or not you can do it. And this was a, you know, eight hundred horsepower car, so I declined it. But uh, first time I ever turned down a ride that <laughs> I can think of. Man, wow! But I liked it. Yeah, and and uh, went back to the second year, and Rick Noop drove it, and the car had a. The cars, the car had an electrical glitch, so we didn't have a good time. But anyway, it was, it was fun. I really, I'm glad I did it both both years. I'd driven at this point. I'd driven real supers and real sprint cars and stuff. So, you know, I thought maybe sprint I could cars. drive that. Thing. Yeah, I drove a well. I drove. Yeah, I drove a dirt. I drove. I drove a dirt sprint car at at Rumney once, and uh, <laughs> wow, and yeah, and and uh, won the heat. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they came in fourth in the feature or something like that. That was fun. I liked that. And I drove a, a super sprint out of Kalamazoo, Michigan. Wow. They're quick. They're yeah. really quick. That was fun. Yeah. And uh, I drove Red McDonald's super at Star one time just for the warm-ups. His, his driver was late, so I went out and warmed it up. And his driver showed up, and he did the races. So, I, you know, anyway, I'd had some experience and some high – high horsepower cars but i wasn't going to do pike speed <laughs> no. yeah it's just too easy to die yeah there is no natural progression in this one because <laughs> you've done everything so let's pick a topic um you did do uh some cup racing for a little while uh the bear family that, that owned oxford and built new hampshire motor speedway were dabbling in in uh, cup racing and they asked Bill to drive for him at Atlanta, and Bill we'd run Atlanta. Bill Alsop, yeah, and we'd run Atlanta several times in the Indy car and tested. So I had experience and so forth. So they thought he might do well, and uh, so they put him in the car, and then and and uh, he wanted me to come along as as the translator because the guys you know on his crew had never done any Indy car work at all, and. And I had and had worked with Bill for a long time. Plus, I spoke I spoke stock car and Indy, so I went down to, to do that. But uh, he, he crashed it in uh, 
in practice and that was over that that was over and then um uh dana Patton put this deal together and he wanted me to he wanted me to be his driver coach and so we went to we tested at dover then went to michigan that that didn't that didn't it was just it was just the program was too thrown together it just didn't work out and um uh got bailed back in 78 after uh after i'd won the uh won those races at the Manette on Claremont. Uh, I'd gotten to know Jeff Bodine a little bit because he was kicking ass that year. And uh, he was he was doing Winston Cup. And uh, so I worked the Darlington race with them. No, Rockingham race with them. So that's all the, that's all the Winston Cup I did. But but it was, uh, you know, I got a good taste for it. To be honest, I didn't like it much. At the, I don't know if it's like still like this, but at the time, my assessment is that, you know, NASCAR is a, a family-owned uh, dictatorship, and they played favorites heavily. We even saw that in the Modified Tour because it went our way one time, and I'm thinking that's dishonest. And and yet they they offered us to do this thing on the Modified Tour, and so anyway, so I wasn't really enamored of it. You know, I'd like to race clean. Can can I press you on that and ask what that was? Oh, in the modified tour? Yeah. Okay, I'll give I'll give you the example there. Okay, so so we hadn't run the we hadn't run the tour much and my son had only driven the modifieds. He'd driven a lot of other stuff, but hadn't driven modifieds very much. And so we put a we bought a, a very good used car and a, one of Steve Park's engines and um uh and we were just gonna run the big races, Loudon and, and Watkins Glen. We showed up and and uh had had we we had trouble qualifying at uh, at Loudon because the uh, clutch was slipping, and then we went to Watkins Glen, and in the very first warm up, there was a, there was a problem with, uh, with the oiling system. But he got he got two clean laps at Watkins Glen, and uh, was ninth on the grid on the modified tour in his first run there ever. Well, he'd run he'd run the twenty four hour, hours at uh, at Watkins Glen, and came in third but that was in a, a sports car and uh so he was ninth on the grid and then um the it was raining and so the, instead of giving us our uh our qualifying time our qualifying session they gave it to the winston cup cars because their their qualifying had rained out and, and so they were starting fights just by their point basis only no no uh, uh no qualifying at all and so they set us home we were the we were the one car that that uh, we were the last car with the fewest points. We didn't, and so they sent us home. Didn't even let us try to qualify because I had a full field. And then we got to Loudon, and I think they were feeling sorry for us. And you go in and you pick you pick a ball out of a hat or you know, pick your your qualifying time. And my son picked out like thirty one or something, which is a terrible time spot. Spot. And the guy said, "And hey, we were polite. We were polite and nice to everybody." And um, and uh, the guy said, "You don't want that one, do you?" And my son kind of said. You know, kind of look quizzical, and he and he and he said, "No, you don't want that one." And he said, "Okay," so he put it back and picked another one up. And he said, "You don't want that one, do you?" And uh, so I guess not. And so he picked a third time till he got a good spot. I mean, it was very nice of them to do, but what yeah. are they doing with the what are they doing with their buddies out there? You know, I mean, it was nice to do, but it was wrong. Yeah. So anyway, huh. that's my. That's anyway, fun. That's a fun that's, one. That, that's. <laughs> that, just kind of let that one marinate for a minute. Yeah. 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 Well, Did a bunch of road racing too. That was, that was fun. I liked that a lot. 
and also obviously one of the ones we want to get to before kind of we wrap this up is 2,800 miles rally Hong Kong, Beijing. How did that come about? I was, I was the, I was the team manager for David Loring, who was from New Hampshire, who I will say right now I've worked with, with some really, I worked some greats of, of, of IndyCar racing, really good, sharp guys. And David was the most naturally talented guy I ever worked with. He was fantastic. Anyway, we were running the GTP type cars and we'd won a couple of races there. And the guy that had the money in it, um, a, a, a wealthy guy, wanted to do the China, wanted to do the China, China rally. So they had built a first generation Mazda RX-7, bought a bunch of suspension parts from Rod Millen. And we had a 40 gallon fuel cell in it and, a, and the proper computer and so forth. Plastic windows that opened to get ventilation and that kind of thing. And, the China Rally was it was a stop on the World Rally Tour, and I don't know if you guys follow that at all, but that's some serious stuff, you know. Manufacturers, big money spent, oh, people yeah. flying around the world, and um, so my my sixteen year old at at the time sixteen year old Tim, uh, son Tim was working with us on the GTP cars, and so when it came time to get to take this thing to China, David said, "Who do you want to bring?" And so I'll take Tim. So it was just we went, we flew to Hong Kong, we put this thing in an airplane. Got to Hong Kong. Uh, Tim and I were the only support crew. We um, rented a beat-up old Toyota in Hong Kong, bought some tools because it was cheaper to buy them there than it was to cut, to take them over. We had spare tires and stuff like that. And and um, and uh, we uh, we got to the uh, to the tech inspection thing, and they looked at the car and they said, "Well, you've got replacement windows and so forth. You have to run in the very very top class." You know, you've got some things on here that you can't run in the in the lower class. This is the and so the class was factory Audi. The last year they'd won the championship and uh, the world championship with three cars, and I believe they had come in first, second, and third. And this is so, so it's just my my sixteen year old son and I in this in this uh, beat up Toyota van, and those guys had um, three command cars that were old rally cars. They had uh, five trucks and like 50 guys and they're spreading out all over the route, you know, and they had tire changers and, you know, spare engine, spare suspension. And, and, and so we took off and uh, had to run in that class. And because of David's driving at the halfway point in Wuhan, you know, we're 1500 miles, 1400 miles into the race. The, the standings are, uh, factory, uh, factory Audi first place, factory Audi in second place, us in third place, factory Audi in fourth place. And so it was, a, uh, you know, there was some press there and, and, you know, a lot of magazines and, and some, they weren't, they weren't sending sending out TV, but they were filming a lot of it. And, um, it was a big upset. You know where these these guys how 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 are they running at this point at this point? So Pierre, the guy with the money, and it was an egotistical guy, and and in and he was the navigator. And the rules are that navigator they can drive, and they can switch off if they want to. And so the next morning you you start you you end at you end at the at uh, each day at a place at a thing called Park Fermé, you know. And the next morning the press is all there for taking off and you start in the, in the order that you're running. And so it would be an Audi would start first an Audi would start second. We'd start third, another Audi. And so Pierre wanted to be the guy climbing into the car as if he were the guy who had driven it to that position. 
And uh, an hour in, he rolled it over into a rice paddy. Like, honest to God, I found a crane truck nearby and uh really old thing. And I ran over, there's nobody there, but it was really uh, another 30 seconds out. I had a hot wire and I was under the dash, you know, pulling some ignition wires off and winding them together. And a Chinese guy here, a guy yelling at me in Chinese. Anyway, we got the, we got the, we got the thing out of the, out of the thing, but we were out of the race. Cause if you fall, if you fall 30 minutes behind the slowest car, then you're out. So uh, we had to get to the car to, to Beijing to just get it out of there. So David didn't want to drive it anymore. Pierre took off and uh, David want, didn't want to drive it. And so we put my son in it and said, go. So he got in this race car. It still ran fine. <laughs> it, it, the suspension was beat up, but uh, it, it ran fine. He was uh, just turned 16. And he told me later, we put a helmet on him and he took off. And he was so much faster than we were that we'd say, okay, we'll, we had good route maps. He said, okay, there's 125 miles up to this up to this checkpoint. Stop there and we'll catch up with you. And so he took off and, you know, I, I, we got there and he's like sleeping in the grass next to the car. Said, uh, how long you been here? And he looks at his watch and says, oh, two hours and 15 minutes. You know, we were we were in the van going as fast as we possibly could. But anyway, he told me later that that's where he learned to drive a race car. So he did several, we did a few days like that, and then the car finally crapped out and we had to leave it. But um, anyway, we came back to the States, put together another car. This was uh, the Audi. Hold, hold on, hold on. You, you had to leave it? You left it there? We had to left it, yeah. We expected to see, we expected to see it being used as a chicken coop you know when we went through the next year but we didn't we never did see it again we thought they'd probably you know use it for ducks or chickens or something but oh, um it was all through the agricultural center of the of, it was a uh, it was all in peasant it was all through the mountain the interior mountain range so it went from you know rice paddies in the in the in the south to growing corn in the north it was a beautiful beautiful experience and the the, the, the farmers the, the peasants in there were lovely lovely people i got I got stories that you don't have time for. Had a flat, had a flat tire, had a flat tire on it, and had the wrong jack, and it wouldn't lift it up. And the Chinese lifted it in the Air Force for, for me to change the, you know, put like ten guys all around it, lifted it up, didn't wow. speak a word of English. I put my hands on the on the wheel arch and gave a big grunt, and they all swarmed in. And anyway, um, so that's super cool. The Audi the Audi cars were were all wheel drive turbocharged, and ours was just the it was a Mazda RX-7 rotor with a four-barrel four-barrel Holly. We went, we, we came back, and we put together a a turbocharged four-wheel car, four-wheel drive car. Went back the next year and won it with David driving. That easy, you know. So, like, so how so? How does Audi feel about this? I I I, I can't imagine. Um, no, you know what? Audi Audi wasn't back that year. I got to say, uh, the Audi the Audi team wasn't there. But there are other full time. Oh, I know why the Audis weren't there because they they had outlawed their their combination. They had dominated for two full seasons, and so they put something on them that would make them uncompetitive. They couldn't run the turbos anymore. They they had, they had they couldn't have carbon fiber bodies anymore. Um, but um, uh, but then, you know that was pretty that was that was pretty cool. You know, in the in the race ceremonial ceremonial ends at Tiananmen Square, where the where just a few years later wow. with the uh, the massacre, and uh, wow, the massacres on TV. You know, we could just smell it and feel it, and you know, it's kind of kind of weird. But uh, yeah, anyway, that was a that was that was a cool deal. So here so, we uh, sit in 2023. What's left mm-hmm. on your to do list? What do you still 
have a passion for? You know, I, I haven't driven in, uh, I mean, really driven. I've done some instructing at Lime Rock and, and stuff like that. But, uh, um, yeah, I'd like to race something again. When I was, let me see, I was 60, when I was 66, I won four races at, at Loudoun in the, in the sports cars. That felt pretty good. Realized I, I still could, could put it together. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I drive something, but I just, uh, I'm at a point where I, I'm not going to stop and build a race car from scratch and really go at it. You know, if somebody said, I'd like you to drive my car, I'd certainly do it. But, uh, any car, I mean, do, do you, do you take any ride that comes your way? I mean, it seems like maybe you do with a certain degree of prejudice, but, um, yeah, yeah I mean, you're kind of up for everything, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's fun. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, uh, yeah, you know, I'm not. I'm not stuck up about what I drive. I mean, I don't want to drive a, a something that's badly repaired. I drove a midget at um, at uh, a dirt midget at um, Bradford twice. When was that? That was just a few years ago, and it was horribly maintained, and uh, it was just no fun at all. The last race, Jack Jack Haddenshield, you know, the national midget championship champion, was there, and uh, I think he lapped me twice you know just because the car with my car was badly prepared and it wasn't even owned by a friend of mine i had to i actually had to put some money up to drive it but i'd never driven a i'd never driven a usac midget before so i wanted i wanted to do that so i don't know i don't know uh, you know i drive anything that's fun that's reasonably well prepared for its class you know i like to drive i like the competition time for our berry tile quick hitters and then we will let you go first up who did you learn the most about driving from by watching through the windshield? Oh, oh, wow. Punky Karen. I would say Punky Karen. Yeah. Throwback. Yeah. Yeah, that man. That guy could wheel. Now, and now we just talked about not banging, but I've heard he was not afraid to do that. Yeah, well, I, you know, he, he had raw talent, but when his car wasn't up to it, he'd he'd take somebody out. I, I, I it's funny because I don't, I shouldn't say this, but I don't have a lot of respect for Punky, but I have a tremendous as a person, but I have a lot of respect for him uh, for the raw talent he has to wheel a car. I mean, he gets he gets everything you can get out of a car. You know, I've been I I ran I ran in the modifieds against him some, and man, the stuff that guy could pull off was fantastic. My question is, uh, what's the dumbest thing you ever did in a race car? There's so many. How can I answer? Uh, uh, probably the dumbest thing I, I dumbest thing I ever did was uh, I was racing the dirt car at Manadnock, and uh, I'd been to a friend's wedding earlier in the day, and I wasn't drunk, but I had a couple of drinks, and uh, you know, and it was two hours since my last drink by the time I got there, so the. It's, it's it's still dirt, so the feature comes up, and um, and I, I don't know, I'm I'm sort of in the mid, middle of the pack or something like that. And I go down the front straight at Manadnock, and a whole bunch of cars just turn into each other. You know, it's just like eight cars sliding sideways and going everywhere. And I went, you know, dodge left, dodge right on the throttle, on the brake, and I missed all of them. Right, so I get into turn one, and I'm looking over my shoulder to see what happened, see what's going on back there. I was so amazed that I'd made it. 
and drove off in drove off turn two. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. <laughs> so that's a dumb thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a really good one. Yeah. Didn't hurt hurt the car or anything, but <laughs> at the time it was yeah. Yeah, I've never forgotten that one. <laughs> All right. Uh last one. You're on a road trip to a race, you're driving the whole way. Who do you want riding shotgun with you? My two kids, Tim and Nate, because they were they were involved in all this racing, and uh, they traveled with me a lot and so forth. And and uh, they are good companions and good spirited guys, and uh, and a lot of fun. Always a lot of fun. Do they have kids, and, and are they into this? Yeah, they they they, they actually uh, Nate's a Formula One fan. Um, uh, they're both out in California and, uh, Tim has, uh, three kids and he's got a very good high tech job out there. And Nate's got two kids and he's got a really high tech job that Joby, they're making electric airplanes that take off, uh, vertically and, and then, uh, transition to, to, uh, horizontal. And he's been working on that for quite some time. And, wow. uh, yeah. Um, uh, but that, they, yeah, they're just, uh, they're just good, straight up fun loving guys you know hard they work hard they play hard a lot of fun right on i, I uh, no i can't let you go yet i did say i was going to ask you about dan gurney um did you sure. spend any time with him i mean what kind of a guy was he just a genius in, in motorsports but um did you know him at all i you know i i can't say that uh, you know we never had a drink or had a meal together we just talked at the racetrack occasionally and you know, I came to realize that, you know, if he wasn't talking to somebody else that, you know, and I could, I could, I could talk to him, you know, about the McLaren we were running that we bought from him and that kind of thing. And Dan Dur- and Dave, uh, David Loring had driven for, for Dan Gurney and helped develop a car for him and won a national championship in it. So we had something there, but um, Dan was um, an absolutely regular guy. He was polite. He was pleasant. He was funny. He was never above you in conversation. Just a, a very rare human being to be that accomplished and never think of himself as a, as above anybody else. Yeah, he was he was a great guy, great guy to talk to. And you're right, an absolute genius. Who would I mean, never he would never admit that he was a genius. Just one of the greatest American drivers of all time. Absolutely, and builders and, and minds. Yeah. I mean, he's done he's done things as a builder, driver, designer, engineer, and so forth that nobody has ever done in the world. You know? yeah. yeah, pretty good brain to pick. Um, yeah. Kelly, yeah. it's uh, it's been a joy, and I feel like we could do two or three more rounds of this. Uh, so maybe we'll hook up with you again because we just yeah. scratched the surface of <laughs> of what you're yeah, of what you've done. I can yeah, there's some, there's, there's some more stories, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Well, next time that you're around, you're out in Arizona right now. Uh, yeah. Next time you're back this way uh, and you've got a minute, we'll get together, have a beer, and record episode two. Oh, I'd love, yeah, I'd love to do that. That'd be, that'd be great fun. I'll All be right. back this summer. And, 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 and thank you. I appreciate you inviting me on the show. Thanks again to Kelly for giving us so much of his time and really taking us to school on a lot of things that we know nothing about. And man, that is a lesson though. If you want to do something and you're willing to grind 
look what you can accomplish. I mean, you mentioned in that interview, you asked him like, Hey, did you go to school for any of this? And he's like, no. Once I started getting into it, I just read every book that I could find. And anytime I had the opportunity to do something, I just did it and grind away. Work ethic, man. How badass, right? And just never say no to an opportunity. Uh, if there's work, take it and and do absolutely everything that you can with it. Make sure you are Huge. subscribed to the podcast so you get it every time it comes out. Leave us a five-star review. Helps us with the algorithms. Follow us on all the socials, Uncommon Deeds on Twitter and Facebook, Uncommon Deeds Podcast on the Instagram. The Instagram. All I can think about is next week is episode 100, and we've got plans. We can't tell you what they are, but we got them. Okay. It's going to be cool. I mean, I don't want to say it's just another show because they're all special in their own way. I think that we kind of lost track of where we were in the number thing. Like, cause we saw, we made a huge deal out of our one year, right? Last right. year, this year we did not with two years, which by the way, it was yesterday. Yeah. Um, I saw the uh, Facebook memories. Yeah. Pop Sunday up. was our Sunday. But yeah. We figured kind of after the one year kind of switched to, to round numbers. Yeah. Cause it made more sense than you know, the big, Episode 99, which is what it would have been because we skipped most of July. Mm-hmm. We missed a few, so it's not whatever it would have been. 106. Yes, right. Or right. 105 or whatever it would have been. So, yeah. You know, round numbers, big round numbers are very cool. And the the planning hasn't gone perfectly. No. You know, some things I we had a pretty good idea of what we wanted to do for this episode. Unfortunately, kind of a plan fell through kind of late, late in the planning process. So, yeah, that's all right. We get it's been happening to us a lot lately. (laughs) For once, we're actually ahead of things for the most part. I mean, like we're recording almost a week ahead of time where we need to be almost, I say. Minus Um, open, close and. Story time. Yeah, it's not that. I mean, that's last minute. But, um, you know, or at least our, our guests, that segment is recorded not on Monday night anymore. Yeah. Like it has been. That is true. Yeah. So hopefully um, we will uh, we'll bring you something good no matter what. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We might call in a couple of favors because um, the plan that we've got or that we had <laughs> – we're going to miss by a week or two. <laughs> and the plan we had a couple of weeks ago didn't come, didn't come through. Uh, shit happens. <laughs> it's still going to be fun. And, you know, not putting anybody on blast, but sometimes people just stop freaking talking to you. You're having conversations, going back yeah. and forth, and then yeah. message read and nothing ever comes back. <laughs> happens. Yep. Uh, and the last message is always, hey, send me an email with more information. And so I do that. And then it's ghost town. Yeah. Hey, did you get that email? Nothing. Nothing. 
But if you want to send us an email and oh, be yeah. part of uh, part of the fam, we got a lot of stuff going on with the uh, with this podcast. With slowly transitioning to getting YouTube stuff going with this podcast, the No Fouls podcast, which keeps on churning and having a lot of fun with that, and more great guests coming up in the next few weeks. The new sports order, like I said, is going to have some fun in the NFL offseason, and that's you know new sports order, whatever, transitioning with the uncommon media, whatever that's going to be two weeks from now. Get on board. We've said it ever since we were fortunate enough to get a sponsor. Shout out Massetti Brothers. And, well, let me let me interrupt you. Between the open and the close, Paul Massetti posted that there's the birth of his first grandchild uh, hey. today. So, congratulations to the, the Massettis. Indeed. Go ahead. Mazeltov. <laughs> Lime. Uh. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> way to interrupt. Uh, yeah. Like we've said since that beginning. We pride ourselves on over-delivering for our sponsors and bringing something to the table so you don't feel like you just gave us money because you enjoy our show, that we bring you customers, we bring you some work, and we take great pride in that. So reach out, send us an email, uncommonmediavt at gmail.com. Let us know kind of what you're looking at, what you'd like to get out of it, and we can make something work for you. Mm-hmm. Hey, I thought of something for this weekend, folks. If you're uh, looking for a little social entertainment, uh, come on down to Middlebury. We've got the 100th Middlebury College Winter Carnival coming up on sa- Saturday night and Sunday afternoon. And yours truly will be taking part in the on-ice action. Our Winter Carnival for Colchester, which is always huge, was last weekend. And it was negative 45. So, oh, God. Yeah. I think most of that was was canceled. Yeah. I don't think it was quite warm enough for the pony rides. Well, this is indoors. It's a nice show. It's a skating show. Like, I mean, this is real, real good. Okay. Me with my dull-ass skates with my five-year-old skating to the Pink Panther. It's going to be good. So get out to Middlebury and see Justin Boitano. <laughs> that about wraps up this show. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to the Uncommon Deeds podcast. This has been a production of Uncommon Media.